Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email we send this out once a week it's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online apart from that there is a give button so if you're feeling led you can do that right online through our website you can also find us on facebook and youtube we are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that god's going to do something special in you through today's message enjoy Well, I want to start this morning by asking you a question. How many of you have any fears? How many, are, are you, any of you afraid of anything? Yeah? Yeah, and a lot of you are just liars. I know that because I know who some of you are. But what are you afraid of? What, you know, the world has, a, there's a lot of common phobias or fears in the world. Some, some of the most common um, phobias or fears would be like an arachnophobia. Do you, anyone suffer from arachnophobia? Fear of what? Spiders, right. Or how about this one, ophidiophobia. Do you know what ophidiophobia is? Anyone have this one, a fear of snakes? Yeah, some of you, how many of you love snakes? Oh, not yet, not yet with the picture, just hang on. I don't want them to cheat. So let's go back a bit. Uh, anyone know what aerophobia might be? You can go back to this previous slide, Bill, if you don't mind. They're all cheating. Don't look, look away, look away. <laughs> just click on the previous slide, that's all you got to do. There you go. <laughs> well, now you know all the uh, phobias that there are in the world. And, uh, no, uh, acrophobia is a, oh, you don't even know. Okay, acrophobia is a fear of heights. How many of you are afraid of heights? Any of you not too stoked to go really high up places? Or aerophobia, which would be a fear of flying. Uh, misophobia or miso. I don't know. If it's misophobia, it's probably a fear of miso soup, which I am afraid of. I think it's misophobia, and that's a fear of germs or dirt. Some people really suffer from that. Oh, there's a bunch that are really... <laughs> Hands are very quickly going up about that one. Um, how about this one, agoraphobia? That's a fear of crowded spaces or, or just, you can put the picture up now if you want, Bill. Um, and how about this one, trypanophobia. Anyone know what that is, trypanophobia? Fear of needles, yeah, like, and medical procedures that involve needles. So I, personally, I'm kind of, the only one of those phobias that I really don't like, and it's not even on there, is the ophidiophobia, which is the fear of snakes. I don't love snakes. Um, I don't mind looking at them and seeing them, but I will not, I don't want to handle a snake. Uh, I'll say, I, when I was a kid, I had a major phobia of the dark. I think a lot of kids do, right? I, I, I remember as a kid even having to get out of bed and being like, do I put my feet down, right? Because it's like, what's, what's under my bed? Um, and so I had a bit of a fear of the dark. I remember as well uh, when I would go to my best friend's house who was at the end of our street, about 10 houses away. Uh, I would, if it was dark when I was coming home at night, I would, he had lived on a long driveway up to his house. And so I'd, I'd get to the bottom of the driveway and I would just run as fast as I could. And I would sing worship songs from church at the top of my lungs. Because there was houses on one side and there was a forest with like a, a creek down on the side. So it was a spooky area. And uh, anyway, I remember that. But, you know, generally speaking, the world, the world really tries to eliminate all fears, doesn't it? It tries to get rid of fear. But the truth is that not all fear is bad. We are currently in our 21 days of prayer and fasting, and the book that we are walking through this year is The Awe of God, which really speaks about the fear of God by John Bevere. We do have a few more copies that came in this week. If you don't have a copy, we have some available. 
So uh, talk to one of the staff members after the service, and we'll get that into your hands. And in this book, um, John Bevere, the author, he points out that there are really two types of fears. There are constructive fears and there are destructive fears. Destructive fears would be kind of like the phobias that, that we just mentioned and talked about. They're the fears that paralyze you, that stop you from really living life, which they're horrible because Jesus told us that we could live life to the fullest. We could have the most abundant full life. And these destructive fears stop us from experiencing and living that. Now, there's also constructive fears, though, and these are fears that actually help us live life to the fullest, like Jesus promised. I would say that these are fears that carry with them wisdom, such as um, some of you maybe have, what, what was the fear of heights? Was it acrophobia, I think, was the fear of heights? Some of you might have an acrophobia, but all of us should use wisdom when hiking, and you get to the edge of a cliff, you shouldn't go too close. That's wisdom, is it not? That's a, that's a constructive fear. It keeps me from going over the edge. There's a, a cliff, right? You don't want to do that every time. So there's something in you that says, I need to have a bit of a fear or respect of the edge of that cliff. Some of you maybe use a table saw, and you should have a fear of chopping off your fingers on a table saw. Even if you have one of those ones that can like, you know those ones that stop, the, whatever they're called? Oh, there you go, stop saw. <laughs> um, you can like, yeah, it won't supposedly cut your finger off. I wouldn't test it, but... But you, you, you have a fear, a fear of a table saw chopping off your finger. So what do you do when you use a table saw? You're careful. You use extra caution. That's wisdom. You make sure the guard is there. You, you make sure that, that you're, you're careful with your hands. You're watching. You're paying attention. Some of you, maybe when you're baking, you have a fear of pulling the hot pan out of the oven and burning your hands. And so what do you do? You use wisdom and you put on a oven mitt and you take out that pan, right? So... There are constructive fears and there are destructive fears. The reality is, though, is that constructive fears can also go too far and stop us from living life as well. Constructive fears, they can. In other words, if you don't want to fall off a cliff, you might say, well, I don't ever want to fall off a cliff. I don't want to get too close to the edge. I'm just never going to go hiking. Do you see what I'm saying? They can go too far. Or with a table saw, I don't want to ever chop my finger off on a table saw. Therefore, I'm never going to turn on the table saw. I'm never going to use it. Or baking, you know, I'm, I, that, that oven could burn me really bad, that hot pan. Therefore, I'll never turn on the oven, I will never bake. Which for some men is probably a good thing. <laughs> but there are constructive fears that can go too far and stop us from living life to the full. The reality is this, John Bevere points out in the book, the most important question that we really need to ask is not about constructive or destructive fears, but what do we fear most? What do we fear most? Because there is a fear that can put all other fears into perspective, that can, that can actually enhance our lives and remove all fears. And what fear is that? That is the fear of the Lord, the fear of God, the fear of God. There's a quote by Oswald Chambers that says this, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. And that's the reality. So don't be afraid because this morning we are going to look at the fear of God. So let's pray first together. Father, this morning, uh, this, is a, this is a somewhat heavy topic or subject. And I just ask that right now your Holy Spirit would help. I've been praying all this week. I've been reminded of the Apostle Paul who wrote in Corinthians that my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. And I pray this morning for that same prayer. God, I don't want to have some wise, eloquent words. Lord, I want there to be a demonstration. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would come right now and demonstrate for us this morning the fear of the Lord. 
Lord, that we would experience you in a way that would change us, transform us. And so help this morning. As I communicate, help me to just know what to say, what not to say. Help all of us in this room, God, to have ears to hear and to receive what it is that you want to teach us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, just one thing I, I want to mention. Um, before I share this message, uh, I want to give credit to a couple different sources that I've used. Obviously, the Awe of God book by John Bevere. There's a lot of resources from that that I've taken for my message. Um, I also want to give credit to the mentoring that I receive on Thursdays uh, with Southland Church in Steinbeck, Manitoba. A lot of what I'm teaching as well comes from um, uh, some of the training that they've given me. And then, of course, I have some of my own study and my own life experience. But I just want to make sure that I give credit where credit is due. And the first thing I want to do is I want to begin by taking a quick look at what the fear of God is. What is the fear of God? And now some of you might even be thinking, wait a minute, Peter. One of the, one of the most repeated things you tell us that, that Scripture commands us over and over and over, over 365 times, in fact, more than one time for every day of the year, is what? Fear not. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Do not fear. Peter, you tell us all, all the time that, and now you're telling us, fear God? It's true. That is one of the most repeated commands of Scripture. But do you know that over 200 times, Scripture also tells us, fear God. Fear God. And since reading this book, I, I don't know about you, but since reading through this book, I've been noticing in my morning times how much the Bible tells us, fear God, the fear of God, to fear God, over and over and over. And so we are to fear not, but we are to fear God, because it silences all other fears. As, as Charles Spurgeon said, he said this, the fear of God is the death of every other fear. Like a mighty lion, it chases all other fears before it. In fact, there are so many scriptures that tell us to fear God. I think one of the things that we need to understand is that the fear of God is not an option. It's actually a command of scripture. It's a command because what the fear of God does is it keeps us within the bounds of a relationship with God. It's so that we can continue in fellowship with him and experience life to the fullest. And one thing I want us just right off the top here, just, just really try to nail this home is number one, first importance is that the fear of God is not to scare us away. It is not to scare us away, but to draw us near in relationship. Okay? The fear, it's a strange thought and idea, but the fear of God isn't to, to, to scare you, to make you afraid of God but to actually draw you closer to him. In Exodus 20, verse 20, we see this, the dichotomy of the command, do not fear, but instead fear God. If you know Exodus 20, that's when Israel has um, served many years of slavery in Egypt. God has set them free, free through Moses. Moses has come to Egypt and they've been released. They've, they've obviously, you know, the miracles and they've, they've now been led. Where are they going after they've been set free from Egypt? Where are they headed? Where? Not the promised land. No, not the promised land. The first thing God wants to do is he set them free and he says, I want to now introduce you. Israel had forgotten who God was. They had been like 500 years in slavery. They'd forgotten completely who God was. And God says, I want you to know first and foremost who it is that has set you free. And so the first place that God brings them is not to the promised land, but to the mountain of God. He wants to say, I'm the guy that set you free. I want to introduce myself to you. That's what he does. He brings them to the mountain of God and it's here at the mountain that they're there, that God shows up. Here I am. And do you remember, we went through the book of Exodus. What happened when God showed up at the mountain? Do you remember there was like thunder, there was lightning, there was trumpet blasts, there was clouds and smoke and fire. It was freaky. And when God shows up, it can be a little bit freaky. Let's be honest. He's God. He's God. 
And so he shows up, and, and there's these scary things going on. Look what Moses says in, in verse 20 of Exodus 20. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. There's one of those 365 commands. Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. He says, don't be afraid of God, but fear God. And we see that dichotomy right here. You see, Moses differentiates between being afraid of God and fearing God. If you're afraid of God, what's going to happen? If you're afraid of God, you'll be scared. You'll run away. In fact, that's what we're going to see Israel do. They run away. But if you fear God, instead you will be drawn to him, which we will see with Moses. He goes up the mountain. He actually goes into the thunder and the lightning and the thick cloud and darkness. The freaky stuff, he says, yes, I respect him, but I want him. And he's drawn closer. Look at what happens in the next verse, verse 21. So the people stood afar off, but Moses, what did he do? Drew near the thick darkness where God was. The people were afraid, so what did they do? They drew back. They stood afar off. Moses feared God, and he drew near where God was. It's kind of, it's kind of like how I fear vehicles, okay? I'm not afraid of cars. I'm not afraid of trucks. In fact, I love using them. I love driving them. I find them very practical. I find them fun to drive. I enjoy driving. Uh, they're, they're, they improve our lives in so many ways. But I do have a healthy fear of cars and trucks, Right? I have a healthy respect of their power and of what they are capable of doing. So I don't ever just jump in front of a car or a truck. I don't also just jump out of a moving car or truck. Right? I mean, why? I have a healthy fear of them. I know what can happen. And, and I, I, I do my best to remain within the parameters of the laws of the road <laughs> when operating a vehicle. Most of the time, I, I am fairly good with it. And so long, here's the thing, so long as I remain within the boundaries of the laws of, of, of how a vehicle is to be used, so long as I remain within that, so long as I respect what they're capable of, I can enjoy the use of vehicles. You know, when I don't respect those, you know what happens? That's when I get into trouble. If I'm not obeying the boundaries and I'm going a little too quick and that corner comes up, oh, I got to jam on the brakes and I can get into trouble, right? But when I, when I respect what they're capable of and the boundaries that they're set within, I can enjoy them. Now, similarly, we aren't to be afraid of God, but we should fear him. We should respect and understand his power, what he is capable of. Stick within the boundaries of maintaining the relationship with him. But the thing is this, the fear of God is much more than just a respect or an awe for who God is. Without looking at at all the scriptures this morning, there are some, like I mentioned, 200 times, over 200 times, the Bible talks about fearing God. Here are some of the ways to describe the fear of God. When we fear God, we stand in complete awe of him. We we tremble even at who he is in a good way. We esteem him, we respect him, we honor him above everything and everyone else. The the fear of God brings with it a, a respect for his word, his presence, and we give him his full attention. When we fear God, we love what he loves and we hate what he hates. Sin, evil, wickedness, pride, all these things. When we fear God, what is important to him becomes important to us. What is not so important to him is not so important to us. You could say in many ways that when we fear God, we take on his heart. And to fear God ultimately is to obey him. You see, it's, it's much more than just loving Jesus. It's much more than just saying, I love Jesus, therefore I fear God. No, it's much more than that. In the book, I don't th- I think it's this week you're going to read the story of John Bevere who had the opportunity to interview a preacher, a very famous preacher, 
who got in some trouble, some fraud and some other things, um, had a number of affairs, committed adultery, ended up going to prison. A very well-known preacher. I, 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 he doesn't mention the name of the book, but I'm pretty sure I know who it is. He goes and he meets with this, this preacher in prison, and he says to, one of the things he asks him, he says, when did you stop loving Jesus? And you know what the preacher said? He said, I never stopped loving Jesus. And, and John Bevere mentions how he's like, I actually got angry when he said that. What do you mean you didn't stop loving Jesus? And, and he got angry, and he said, no, it, it wasn't that I didn't love Jesus. The problem was, was that I didn't fear God. I didn't fear God. I'd love Jesus, I didn't fear God. And we can all love people, and the truth is, we can love people and we can not even know them. We can love all kinds of people, not know them or not even be known by them. Think about celebrities. Think about athletes that we love. Think about Taylor Swift. All the Swifties out there this morning. Yeah, you guys laughed. There's a bunch of Swifties. Yeah, there's some Swifties in the crowd today. Right? These people that, that will weep. They'll do all kinds of crazy things for Taylor Swift. I know it because I have one in my household. <laughs> Andrea is just a major, no, it's not Andrea. <laughs> but these, these, these Swifties, they love her. They'll do anything for her. They don't even know her. Truthfully, do they know her? If they ran into her on the street, she'd be nice and kind to them, but she'd be like, I don't know who you are. I, I, I don't know you. you. You don't know me. But, but yet they would say, I love her. I'd, some of them would give their life for her. It's crazy. You see, when we fear God, we come to know him in all his glory who he is, not who we think he is. When we fear God, we come to know him in all his glory, who he is, not who we think he is. And often we don't fear God because what is missing is an understanding of who God truly is. We have a a diminished, a small, a shrunken view or an incomplete view of God. You know, often we we picture, this would be the second point here, Bill. We, We often picture or have an image of Jesus Jesus, you know, actually, it was pretty cool. I didn't mention this with Connor, but the, um, the verse he talked about, he quoted in Colossians 1 this morning, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It's true. Jesus, we have this picture of Jesus who is the image of the invisible God, but oftentimes, it's only partially complete, the picture, the image. And our church calendar really reveals this. We have what's known as CEO Christians. Do you know what CEO Christians are? Yeah, Christmas, Easter only. That's the only time they show up at church. And our church calendar kind of, hang on, just wait. Our church calendar reveals this because, because what, what do we have? We have this image or this picture of Jesus where, where we celebrate these two holidays of the year that are the most important and the, most, the biggest holidays. Number one, Christmas, which you have this weird-looking Jesus doll that's got blonde hair. That's a horrible, this is one of the pictures, though, that we have of Jesus, is it not? And this is when we invite our CEO Christians, our Christmas Easter only Christians, they get this understanding. Well, this, okay. And then we have other images of Jesus. The next slide here, it's like, so we have Jesus with the, the blonde haired Jesus. And then the next slide there, Bill, I don't know if something's, there we go. This is like, this is like adult Jesus or teenager Jesus that's kind of a baby in a manger. I mean, how weird can you get? So then we have the next image. This is a little more normal. This is more normal, still blonde, so incorrect. But at least it's a little better. Right? And we have this picture, this image of Jesus as a baby in a manger, which is good. It's not that there's anything wrong with that image. This is what's known as the incarnation. It's God taking on flesh, becoming like us. It's an important part of our theology and our faith. It's a good image to have that Jesus became a baby, humbled himself. Philippians 2 talks about it for us, for me, for you. So there's the Christmas 
part of the calendar. Then there's the Easter part of the calendar. And the image, of course, that's etched into our minds, the pictures that abound, are, are, are Christ on the cross, right? We have this image, this picture. And the cross is central to our faith. It is a good image to have in our minds of Jesus coming in flesh as a baby and then growing to an adult and giving his life in our place. It's an important image to have. And sometimes with Easter, you know, we focus on the cross, but it's not only that. Of course, Easter is also the resurrection. And so we have this other image of Jesus, you know, coming from the tomb, perhaps with the meeting, you know, as the gardener, you know, coming and meeting Mary in the garden, or perhaps eating fish with the disciples by the, the lake one day, or maybe, um, maybe walking through walls. It's kind of cool Jesus image, right? But for the most part, in our church calendar, we miss altogether the ascension of Christ, the ascension of Christ is where he is now. And where is Jesus now? He's in heaven on the throne. He's on the throne. I wasn't aware of this. I was talking to Dana this week about this. I didn't actually know this. She said, you know what is interesting is that there's Western Christians and Eastern Christians. About roughly 1,000 AD, the church kind of had a split. And the, the, the church went, group went west, one group went east. And you have these kind of two divisions of the church. And the Western church, which is what we belong to, their image is oftentimes this thing on the wall, a cross. That is how we would view Christ, the cross and Christ on the cross. Do you know what? The, I didn't know this. The Eastern Christians, actually, their representation of Christ is actually a throne, Jesus on the throne. Isn't that interesting? I thought, that's part of our problem. That is part of our problem. We have the incomplete. It's not the wrong picture. The cross is a part of the picture. It's just not complete. It's not the whole picture. You see, the reality is, is that Jesus spent the briefest of his eternal life as a baby or on a cross. Think about that. The smallest part of his life was spent in those two areas. Yet our pictures in our mind tend to picture Jesus that way. Revelation chapter 1, it gives us this picture of Jesus as he is now. And look at what it says. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. These golden lampstands were the seven churches of Asia, we're told later. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, that's Jesus, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. So this is the picture. He's got this long robe on, a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Picture mine. Not quite. But this is purity. Is what it's depicting, this purity to him, covering his head. Then look at what it says next. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, I don't know about you, but that ain't no baby in a manger. That isn't no man on a cross, right? Those are correct pictures, but they're not the full picture. Revelation 1 shows us Jesus as Lord, God himself, as he is now. And what does John do? John, who is having this vision, it says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. How does he respond? Look at 117. It says, when I saw him, I think, does there one, maybe, I might have screwed up. There might be one slide before that. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Oh, <laughs> that's a little different than the baby at the manger. I fell. We see this over and over in Scripture numerous times. When God shows up in all his glory, the response of most people is, I'm dead. I'm a dead man. They fall face down. 
They got nothing that they, they can't stand in God's presence. Think of, think of Abraham. He did that. Isaiah, Ezekiel, all these scriptural accounts. And what does Jesus do? It goes on here. Verse 17 continues. He says, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. He says, you don't have to be afraid of God, but I understand here that there's, a, a, but you need to fear God. What does he say? I hold, I, listen, you don't need to be afraid, but I have all the authority. I've got all the power. I've got the keys of death and Hades, death and hell. They're mine. And what does, here's the thing we need to understand. What does Jesus proceed to do next in chapters two and three of the book of Revelation? We get this incredible image of Jesus as he is now. And then what does he do in chapters two and three? There's a bunch of letters. He says, I want you to talk to the churches of Asia. Seven churches, that's what he's standing amongst. He's standing amongst these seven golden lampstands that represent the seven churches of Asia. And what does he do? He begins to use his power and his authority to commend and correct. That's what he begins to do. He actually pronounces some pretty harsh judgments, some pretty strong words for those churches. To some of them, he actually says, you need to clean up. You need to repent or I'm going to leave, he says. I'll actually turn off the light. That's harsh. That's really harsh. Jesus right now is king on the throne. And you know that one of the roles of a king that sits on a throne is to do what? To judge. And that's what he's actually doing. That's what he does in Revelation 2 and 3. He judges these seven churches. Good job. You're doing well here. You need to fix that over here. Do you see? That's what a judge does. Really good there. You need to fix that over there. And far too often our image of Jesus is, is just baby Jesus or hippie Jesus or buddy Jesus. But it's an incomplete picture. We need a greater revelation, a greater picture of who he is now. Who he is now. That he stands, you know what? Duncan Pentecostal Church, he stands amongst us right now. We need to understand that. Today, we are in the scriptures, we're described as his bride. And Jesus stands amongst us as the groom. We are the bride. And you know why he stands amongst us? To refine us. To purify us. I'm going to even use the word to judge us. It's not often that you'll hear that. You won't hear me say that hardly ever. But it's the truth of Scripture. Ephesians 5, 27 even speaks of how Christ comes and with the washing of the water of the Word. The Word of God washes and cleanses us. He says, with the washing of the water of the Word, He says, I will present you without stain or spot or wrinkle or blemish. He's describing us as His bride. Now those of you that were a bride or are a bride or have been a bride, whatever you want to describe it as, when you put on your wedding dress, you don't wear it around town and go, go do all kinds of things in it, right? It's like, oh, I, I got my wedding dress. I can't wait for the day. And then you go into town and you get groceries and, and then, you know, other things. Oh, and then you go to a nightclub at night because you're like, oh, I want to go, you know, I want to go dance and have some fun, right? And you get, it gets all dirty. In many ways, that's kind of what the church right now, the bride of Christ is doing. We're dressed in our wedding dress and we're, we're doing all kinds of things in it. Things that maybe aren't befitting even of a bride, and the dress is stained, and, and he says, I, you know what, I want to clean you. I want to wash you with the word. Because a bride always wants to look their best on the wedding day, do they not? They do. And a groom wants their bride to look the best on their wedding day. And something we often forget as Christians, it, it, you'll hear me say this all the time, we don't stand before the great white throne judgment. You know that. The great white throne judgment is where the sins of humanity are judged. 
And why do we not stand before the great white throne? Because, because our sins have been judged. We are saved. Jesus has paid the price for our sins. But here's the thing that we sometimes forget is that we do stand before what's known as the judgment seat of Christ. Notice it's not called the lovey-dovey seat of Christ. It's the judgment seat of Christ. Yes, our sins are paid for. Yes, our eternity is secure. I was so convicted the first time I read this book that with my preaching, I say, oh man, I so often preach love and mercy and grace. And we should, we should. But we can't forget that there will be a judgment even for Christians. Not for our sins. And it's not just for rewards. That's oftentimes what we speak, well, it's just where, where, where you'll be rewarded. It's true, that's where we'll be judged for our rewards. But listen to what Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, speaking to Christians. In verse 1 and 2, he tells us this. He says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary, the, the basics of teachings about Christ, and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Right? And then he goes on to say what? Instructions about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead. And then what's the final thing he says? Eternal judgment. He says, these are the elementary teachings of Christians. Eternal judgment. Our eternal judgment. Not whether we go to heaven or hell. That's been decided. That's been determined. In fact, there's a lot of New Testament scriptures that speak about this judgment. Such as 2 Corinthians 5, 9 to 11. It says, so we, and this is speaking to Christians, we make it our goal to please him. Whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may give, sorry, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done well in the body. And look what he says next, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. Other translations say, have the terror, terror of the Lord. That's like a, wow, that's a big one. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. He's saying, we, we understand that there's a judgment that is going to come. And so this life here on earth, this mist, this breath, this vapor, as it's described, is not the only thing that we're living for. And so he goes on to say this, what we are is plain to God. There's no fooling God. And I hope it is also plain to your conscience. I mean, those are some kind of scary verses. I'll be honest. I was just reading this last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It speaks about how the things that we build, are they of eternal value or not? Because what are we building on? The foundation of Jesus will be tested one day, it says, by fire. It'll be tested by fire. And, and it actually says in Corinthians 3, he's, he's speaking to Christians. He says, listen, you're saved. You gotta know that. You are saved. You're secure in Christ. But he says, but if everything's burnt up, it'll be as though you're just kind of passing through the flames. It'll be like you smell like a little too much of smoke. You've been smoking? That's, that's what it's going to be like. Just We've been around the campfire a little too long. Can't get that smell out. You'll, you'll be saved, he says. Just know that. But if, if what you've been building is of no eternal value, it's just going to burn up. And here's the thing. I think what Paul here in, in these writings is trying to get out is that understand that when we fear God, we don't need to fear anything or anyone else. Why? Because we can live for an audience of one. That's why he says we live to please him. He's the only one that we truly need to please, not not my spouse, not my kids, not my church even. Him, him alone is who I stand before and he's the only one I need to live to please. And he has all power and all authority. So we can trust that he's in control whatever comes 
our way. You know, in fact, you can, I love what the book talks about, you can actually trade all other fears for the fear of God. That's a good trade. No more fear of anything else in this life but the fear of God. And let me just be clear before we move on. All this stuff that I've just shared about judgment and the fear of God, it's not to make you afraid of God. I want that to be so clear. It's not to make you afraid of him, but to respect, to honor, to live within the bounds for a relationship with him. In fact, this last week, I was praying. I actually mentioned the staff on Tuesday. I'm like, I have no idea what I'm preaching on Sunday. I don't know where I'm going. And I was praying, I was asking, I was seeking the Lord. And I was like, God, I don't know what you, what, I don't know what to share. I don't know what you want me to share from this book. And I actually was praying, I was saying, God, I don't even know how to describe the fear of God. I, I've read the book almost twice now, and I can't wrap my head around the fear of God completely, if I'm honest. I've been struggling. What really is it? And I, I just spent time seeking the Lord, and I felt like he kind of said, you know what, this, isn't, this doesn't sum it up. But Peter, this is what I want you to take away right now, that a key aspect of the fear of God is this, is to fear doing life without God. To fear doing life without his presence. That's what he began to work into my heart because the reality is, is that it's all about his presence. The fear, the fear of God, you gotta understand, it's not, it's not about being scared or afraid of God. What is God's number one desire for us is that we would be in an intimate relationship with him. You can't have intimacy in a relationship with somebody that you are afraid of. That's not what he's getting at. The fear of God is what keeps us, though, in his presence within those boundaries. You see, in the book, John Bevere points out the presence of God can be described two different ways. There's the omnipresence of God, omni, everywhere presence of God. He speaks of, Jesus even says, you know, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Wherever you go, uh, the psalmist wrote, you know, if I ascend to the heights, you're there. If I go to the depths, you're there. I can't get away from you. That's the omnipresence of God. He is everywhere. But there is another presence of God that the Bible speaks of, and that's known as the manifest presence of God. That is the, the intimate, revealed, glorious presence of God. And when he reveals his full glory, it's a whole other thing. Oftentimes, the, the Hebrew word is used is kabod or kavod. And it, 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 it means weight, heaviness, even can be translated as terrifying glory. When God shows up in glory, it's different. His manifest presence and when he shows up, things happen. Some of you have maybe experienced in some way, shape, or form the manifest presence of God in your life. And maybe you've, you've, you've experienced it to a point where you, you, you maybe start to cry. You feel maybe emotional. Maybe you start to sense God's presence and you feel convicted of your sin. You have this picture all of a sudden of God of just how magnificent he is, his, his greatness, his otherishness, his holiness, and, and really our complete oppositeness causes you to go, my goodness, I'm a sinner. Almost, almost every morning when I pause before the Lord, when I take time to just wait, if I, you know, you know how I know when I sense his presence coming? I immediately start going, oh man, that was sin that I did yesterday. That thing that I said, I should never have said that. Th that's what happens. When I start to sense his presence, I realize that I have sin in my life that needs to be dealt with. That's one of the ways I know that he's coming around, that his presence is coming. Oftentimes, people may feel small or have an awe of God, even a scared presence. Not like a, I'm afraid of you, but like a respectful kind of like, I need to be careful right now because of whose presence I am in. I respect you. I'm not scared that you're going to hurt me, but I respect you. I mentioned, you know, just over a year ago, I came back from my sabbatical. And when I was on my sabbatical, I visited a lot of different churches. 
churches in Canada, churches in the States, large churches, small churches, really polished churches, really rough churches, really simple churches, a variety of churches. I would say that's the only thing that really differentiated those churches one from another, didn't matter how big they were, how great they were, or any of that stuff, was, was the, the, and that would make me actually want to attend that church. Because I kind of went to them going, well, what would make me, you know, what could we take? What could we do for DPC? What? The only thing really that I took away, there were some great little takeaways, but the one thing that stood out was if I sensed the presence of God, if I sensed the presence of God in that church, I was like, that's what made me want to be there. And in my prayer journal, since coming back from my sabbatical, I've added that for my prayers for DPC, where I pray regularly for our church that we would hunger for the presence of God, that we would experience the presence and the power of God in our services. Because God's presence is really all that matters. Once you get a taste of the presence of God, it's, it's, it's a bummer because it just ruins everything else. You won't want, you won't need anything else. In fact, Moses, in Exodus 33, so 20 is when they're at the mountain, the people don't go up, Moses goes up. He spends 40 days on the mountain, comes down, there's, of course, there's the golden calf, all that stuff, goes back up for another 40 days, comes back down, and God says to him, he says, listen, Moses, it's time to go on. It's time to leave. I, I want you to go now, take them to the promised land. Do you know what Moses says? Moses says, you know what? Even after experiencing everything with the golden calf and all the garbage that went on there, he says, I don't want to leave here if it means, I don't want to go to the promised land if it means your presence doesn't go with us. That's what he said. If your presence doesn't go, I'm not going. They can have the promised land, but I don't want it. What? No, I don't want it. If your presence doesn't go with us, I'm not leaving. In fact, that's what I think made the psalmist who experienced the presence of God say that it is better one day in your presence, one day in your house, Lord, is better than a thousand days elsewhere. A thousand days of the best, the most incredible, doesn't compare to one day in God's presence. Not why the psalm, that's why he would also tell us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Yet here's the thing, how often am I and are we satisfied to live life without God's presence? Seriously, think about that. How often, how, how many days of the year can I go just kind of being like, I don't care if I meet with God or not today. I don't care whether I experience him or not in my life. I, I, don't, I don't care. There's no fear of God. That we're just too comfortable living life without God. And I think that's part of the power of fasting. Some of you right now are in the midst of these 21 days of prayer and fasting. And, and I guarantee that as you're denying your flesh, you're experiencing the spirit of God come alive in your life. And you're going, you're waking up to his presence again. And you're going, oh, I like this. This is so much better. What a, what, what a better way to live. We're just too comfortable living life without God. And as, as John Bevere points out, he says this, you will never find God's wonderful presence in an atmosphere where he is not revered and held in awe. Well, there's no fear of God. He says, you won't, you won't find his presence. I don't know how many of you have actually read the book yet or gone or the portion that we were supposed to read. But in chapter four or day four, not chapter, but day four and day five, the author, John Bevere, speaks about an experience that he had in Brazil. A powerful experience where the presence of God showed up. He was at a conference and uh, he was asked to speak. This was like in, in the 90s, late 90s. Asked to speak at this conference in Brazil. And he said during the worship, which was incredible worship, he said people were just kind of staring. People were just kind of arms folded, not doing anything. People were talking to their partners, their friends, and going out and getting food. And he, and he was like, what's going on here? He said there was a lack of the presence of God. 
He said even as a, a person came up to read the Bible, nobody did anything, just kept talking. No one cared, no fear of the Lord. And he's like, God, God, what do I do? And he got up there and he just stood there in silence for over a minute until finally everyone quieted down. And he began to share, you know, you have no respect, you have no awe for God. Yet if, you're, if you, your president of your country came in or Pele, your most famous soccer player came in, you'd be riveted. You couldn't care less that God wants to meet with you. And he began to preach on the fear of God. I think he talked for the next hour and a half or something on the fear of God. I'm going shorter this morning, don't worry. And at the end of his message, he said, he, said, he asked, he challenged, he said, if you want the fear of God in your life, if you want to experience the fear of God, stand up. He said about three quarters of the place stood up. And they just began to repent of their lack of the fear of the Lord and their lack of their desire for God. And he, he talked about how the presence of God came into that place and there was a brokenness that came over the people. They began to be weeping and sobbing as they repented of their lack of fear. He said it came in a couple waves throughout the place. I want to read a little bit to you this morning. He says, I was grateful for the refreshing that we all sensed from two manifestations of God's peaceful and wonderful presence. We all stayed in a place of experiencing, sorry, expectancy as a divine tranquility permeated the atmosphere. In the stillness, I heard the Spirit of God whisper to my heart, I'm going to manifest one more time. I uttered aloud what I heard, telling the people, I'm going to manifest. God's going to manifest one more time. However, none of us was aware of what would happen next. <clears throat> a different presence was about to meet us. It's difficult to share what happened, for words cannot do it justice. What I'm about to write will seem far-fetched, even unrealistic. But for more than 20 years afterward, numerous people have confirmed what took place. Imagine standing in a forest when a strong windstorm blows in. You hear the, the loud whistling of the wind through the trees above you. This is similar to the sound of the wind that blew through the arena. We couldn't feel it, but we heard it. Almost simultaneously, those in attendance erupted in fervent prayers and cries. Their voices thundered, yet the sound of the wind overpowered the level of their voices. I was stunned, in awe, and almost terrified by his presence. I couldn't move, couldn't speak, and there were goosebumps all over my body. There was an authority in the atmosphere like nothing I'd ever encountered. I thought, this isn't the presence of Abba, Father. It is our holy, awesome, mighty King. The roar of the wind lasted around 90 seconds. As it gradually subsided, it left in its wake people weeping. Some passed out, some collapsed over the seat back in front of them. But all of us were trembling in awe. The solemn aftermath continued for another 10 minutes or so. I couldn't say anything. We all remained still and silent. I then turned the service over to the leader and was escorted quietly back to the car. That evening's featured soloist and her husband got in our car a few moments after me. Immediately she cried out, Did you hear the wind? I didn't want to go straight to acknowledging it. I wanted someone other than me to confirm what actually happened. So I responded, maybe it was a low-flying plane over the building. This entire arena had a gap between the upper wall and the ceiling to create air ventilation so you could hear sounds coming from the outside much easier than a closed-in structure. She sat in the front seat, turned with a look of shock on her face and passionately encountered, no, it was the Spirit of God. Her husband, who was a quieter man, interjected, sir, that was no jet airplane. I asked, how do you know? He responded, there were security personnel and policemen outside the arena, many of them not believers. When they heard the sound of the wind, they came rushing in and asked our team about the sound of the loud, blowing wind coming from inside the building. Furthermore, I was at the main soundboard. He was there to make sure that the sound levels were correct for his wife's time of singing. 
Not one bit of the sound came through the sound system. The decibel meters registered nothing the entire time the wind blew. His wife continued with, steers, sorry, with tears streaming down her face. I saw waves of fire falling in the building, and I could sense angels everywhere. I asked to be uh, taken straight to my hotel. We were silent on the ride there. Later that evening, I sat on the balcony of my room for hours. All I could do was worship God. I was overwhelmed by what had taken place that evening. The next morning when we entered the auditorium, the atmosphere was completely different. The manifest presence of God that had impacted us during the previous night's service was still notable. The fear of God had been restored in the hearts of the people, and they were experiencing his presence and blessings in a wonderful way. As already stated, several have since confirmed what transpired that evening and have shared the impact on their lives through mail, emails, and in person. In 2016, I traveled to speak to 12,000 leaders in Guyana, Brazil. The welcoming pastor's first words to me as he shook my hand were, I was in the meeting in Brasilia 20 years ago when the wind blew. My life has never been the same since. He is a leader in a church network that grew to over 300,000 people in just 16 years. When my wife was in Brazil in 2019 to minister at a conference, one of the leaders of a different movement reported being in the service where the wind blew more than 20 years earlier. She, too, reported that her life had been forever changed. Here's the key. <clears throat> Being in God's presence is crucial to the spiritual health of every believer. Let me say that again. Being in God's presence is crucial to the spiritual health of every believer. I have a teacher from Bible school who, in my first year, shared a similar story. Listen, Acts chapter 2 talks about this, a mighty rushing wind that came. And my teacher explained one time in a class how he was at a conference and he said that the presence of God came in so thick and heavy. He said it was similar, not like, like he said it was, sounded like a freight train <sighs> coming through, he said, and it was so powerful, so intense. He said that he, he began to, he got down on his hands and his knees. He says people all around him began to duck and cover and grab onto the seats in the stadium that were around them. You know, three times in my life, I have experienced, to a degree, the manifest presence of God. Grade 7, grade 12, and in my fourth year of Bible school. Different than these experiences, there was no wind, but, but there was a heavy, heavy sense of God's presence. There was a conviction, almost every time, a real conviction of sin in my life. There, there, was, there was a brokenness that came over me. I remember in my grade 12 year of high school, I'd been meeting with some friends and we'd, be, we'd just become so hungry for the Lord and I'd begun to pray. One of my friends had said, Peter, you need to pray this prayer. God, blow my mind. And so I began to pray that prayer. God, blow my mind. For months I'd been praying this prayer. And I, I remember going to our, our convention. It's called History Maker in Kamloops, British Columbia where we have this big, um, it, where the Kamloops Blazers play hockey. We met in this arena and I was so hungry for God. And I remember the, the preacher um, giving an altar call and I, I just, I jumped over the boards ran to the front, and I began to seek God. And I remember that, that, that evening as I just began to seek him. Everyone was supposed to have somebody praying for them. That's what the speaker said. Make sure everybody who's up here has somebody, a leader, somebody praying for them. Nobody came and prayed for me. And I just remember being just, it was the strangest experience as I just felt like I needed to get away from everybody anyway. And I went to the side of the stage, and I just, God just began to break me. I became so broken, I began to weep before him, and he began to repair me and fill me up. He began to do his spot cleansing, right? Without stain or wrinkle, he began to just purify my life. I could, I could sense him removing attitudes and things in my life and sin and different stuff. 
And I remember just being so, I, I was just on my face before him. And then I remember, I remember the glorious presence of God coming upon me and, and worshiping him. And I, and I remember there's, it was like a concert kind of setup. And I went behind the curtain, this big curtain. I was like, I got to get away from everybody. I just want to be with God. And as I stepped through that curtain, I just began to worship the Lord. And I, and I, and I don't even know how to explain it, but it was like, it was honestly like I could see the presence of God in the air. The thick presence of God. I don't know how to explain it. So, so thick. And I just was worshiping. I remember that, that the leaders had to come get me. I was in grade 12. I wasn't a leader yet. So they, they, they come find me. And they're like, we, we got to go. You know, we got to go back to the hotel. And I just did not want to leave. And, and, and it just, that experience changed my life forever. And again, in Bible school, a, a similar kind of experience where I was so hungry for the Lord. I remember talking to my mom on the phone. I've shared this before and being like, you know, like, Mom, there's just not enough time. I, I feel like God's calling me to more. He, I, he's got more for me. There's just not enough time. And you know what my mom said? Well, then get up earlier. <laughs> oh, that's horrible. And so I did. I got up earlier, and I began to seek the Lord. And I remember just being on my face before God. I had keys. Um, I, I was an, a resident advisor, so I'd open up buildings, and I had keys to the chapel. I went into the chapel, and I, I just, early in the morning, sought the Lord in this corner room up on the platform where no one would be able to find me. And I spent time saying, God, I just need you. I just, I hunger for you. Lord, I want to hear from you. I'm tired of doing life without you. And it took a long time, and I just, I just kept pressing into him. And then his presence just came, and, and, and you know, the, the Bible speaks about glory, this weight, this kabod, this weight. I honestly, there was a, a, a moment there where I couldn't even stand up. There was such like a heavy sense of God's presence. It was almost like that fear even that I didn't know if I wanted to stand up. I was like, I don't know if I want to. It was powerful, powerful, powerful moment meeting with God. And each time I would say this, those moments have changed my life forever. I've never been the same. And I don't share these things. I don't read this story or share my experiences that we would chase after these experiences. That's not what I'm trying to get at, that we would find, but, but that we would simply hunger and thirst for God's presence, that we would be desperate for what he has for us. I've tasted and I've seen, and you know what? I have to be honest, it's wrecked my life. Like I shared before, nothing satisfies anymore, whether it's good or bad. It just doesn't meet the, the same feeling. And here's the fear. Of, the fear of God leads us to his manifest presence by keeping us in bounds for a relationship with him. The fear of God says this, I don't want to grieve his spirit. I don't want to look at anything or watch anything that Jesus would have to say, I've got to leave now, Peter. I can't be a part of this. I don't want to speak things or listen to people saying things that, that the Spirit of God would say, I've got to go now. I, 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 I'm not here for this. I don't want to be a part of anything that would grieve his spirit and make him leave. And the fear of God, I, this is what God was drilling home in my life this week. The fear of God says, I can't do life without you. And that is my fear. My fear is that I would. That I would go through life, life without needing God. God, I need to keep in your presence. And those of you that are in this room this morning that you have experienced the presence of God in your life, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you have never really experienced the presence of God. You don't know what I'm talking about. Then I want to challenge you to taste and see. To taste and see. We're going to take communion this morning because it's through Christ's work on the cross and through the power of his resurrection that we can be invited into his manifest presence. It's the only way it can happen. And he invites all of us to the table. I just, I want to say this, you know what? The invitation is to come. We're going to do communion a little bit differently this morning. 
We're not going to take it all together. We're not going to do that. We're not going to take it all together. We're going to begin with a time just of prayer, us and God. Us and God, you and God, one-on-one, just saying, God, here's where I am. Here's my heart. Here's that I don't care. Here's me being honest. If I don't care, if I go through life without your presence. And you just spend time with the Lord. And whether you need to come for some carpet time and kneel up front here, whether you just want to sit in your chair, the team's not even going to come. Uh, Lynn and Connor, they're going to lead us during communion, but they're not even going to come yet. I'm going to call them up in a little bit. I want us to spend time being honest with God, being real with God this morning. And then when we do take communion, instead of us taking it all together, you're going to come as you feel led, as you feel ready and prepared to meet with Jesus this morning through these, this bread and this juice that's not magical, it's just a representation of his body, then you're going to take it right there. Our servers are going to give it to you. They're going to say, Christ's body broken for you, and you're going to take it, and they're going to say, Christ's blood shed for you, and you're going to take it. We're not going to take it all together. This is between you and the Lord this morning. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, and you're like, what's all this crazy dude talking about? This is your invitation to come. This is your invitation to start today, to put your faith in him. Basically, it's just as agreeing with God that, that you're a sinner in need of a savior. Well, Jesus is that savior that's here. You need to know that. And you can come and you can receive the bread and the juice that is a representation of his life given in place for yours. I do have um, some gluten-free crackers and juice up here as well. I'll be serving the people that are gluten-free. I'll do both the juice and the gluten-free crackers if you are gluten-free. But the first thing we're going to do is we're just going to spend a few moments here with God before I call up Lynn and Connor to begin to lead us. When I call them up, um, uh, Mike and Robin and, uh, and Mark and Carline are going to serve as well, and I'll get them to come up as well. But let's just take a moment, and let's just present our lives before God right now. Be honest with him right now. If you want to come to the front, if you want to sit or kneel, whatever you want to do. Lord, across this room, we want to be real with you, Jesus. That the fear of God would come over this place and ultimately that we would fear going through this life another day without your presence. And so come, Holy Spirit, we invite you. Begin to work, begin to move, begin to minister amongst us. Begin to do what only you can do. We're not seeking experiences, we're seeking you. And when we meet with you, there's more than we could ever ask or imagine. So come, Holy Spirit. I just invite you right now. Do whatever you want to do. Have your way with our lives, Jesus. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.